0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery... So uh, we are almost there, people. We are, this is second to last Sunday of the Book of Acts. So we have been trucking through the book, all the way back, like at Easter, we were talking about the Book of Acts. I don't even remember when we started the series. I should have looked it up. But we have been going through the Book of Acts for quite a long time, and the end is in sight. We are our second to last Sunday. Next Sunday, don't miss it. We're gonna wrap up the entire Book of Acts. But this morning, as we get into uh, the end of this story of the Book of Acts, the story of the early followers of Jesus, who took this story about a man who went from death to life and started spreading the story all over the known world As we've been following that story, we got to a guy named Paul, who at one point was opposing the people who worship Jesus, who was trying to kill the people who worship Jesus. He experiences a massive and dramatic conversion, and then he starts telling people about Jesus. And so for the kind of last half of Acts, we've been following the story of Paul and the journey he's been on, the odyssey that was his life, and it's reminded me of another story that I know that some of you probably know. Um, You may not realize how well you know this story, but it's of a Native American that lived in the 1600s in the Cape Cod area. His name was Tisquantum. And Tisquantum was a Native American who lived in this area and he was kind of a, when he was a teenager or maybe in his 20s, a European fur trader came over to the shore of where his family lived, where his tribe was, and began abducting people from his tribe and taking them onto his ship and then selling them into slavery. And Tusquantum was one of these people that ended up on this ship and was taken over to Spain where he was put on the market to be sold as a slave. And many of the people, maybe his family members, some from his tribe, were sold at this time. Uh, But then, in the middle of this sale, there's there's this one strange story in the middle of all this, where some Spanish monks came in and they're like, "This slave trade is over. Like we're breaking this up." And they busted the whole thing up. They said we can't be selling people. And they took some of the Native Americans that had been abducted to their monastery and began caring for them and educating them and meeting their needs and things. So the story gets a little unclear as to where Tusquantum went from here. He was taken into is slavery, but whether he ended up a slave or he ended up with the Spanish monks, people don't exactly know. A lot of people like to think that he ended up with this, the monks and at that time maybe learned English and maybe even learned about Jesus, but we just don't know. Either way, Tisquantum was taken from his home to another country across the ocean and he's ended up either in slavery or with some Spanish monks. And there he spends about a decade. His life has been torn apart. His life has been uh, just kind of a crazy mess, probably not the way he planned it, probably not what his family imagined for him. But as time goes by, he somehow gains his freedom back, whether it was again through the, the Spanish monks or whether it was just he got his freedom back, he's able to escape, we don't know. But he finds his way back onto a trading vessel, going back to what then was called the New World, but for him was his old home. And so finally he gets on this boat as a free man and he's riding across the ocean and he lands back where his tribe had lived only to find out that in the decade that he was gone, a terrible plague had swept up and down the coast and killed most of his tribe and wiped out all of his family. And so here is this man that was ripped from his home, sold as a slave, and then comes back years later and finds that everything that he knew, everyone that he knew was gone And he is alone, and he's isolated, and his life is in shambles. Now, I think if we put ourselves in his shoes or his moccasins, we probably would be asking the question, what is going on? And if you believed in God at this point, you'd probably be asking the question, God, where are you in all of this? Have you given up on me, God? God, have you made a mistake? Because this guy was on a journey. This guy was going through an odyssey. But his story doesn't end there because not long after Tisquantum ended up back on the shores, another boat came to this area, the Cape Cod area. That boat was called the Mayflower. And on the Mayflower was a group of people fleeing from religious persecution and they'd come over to what they called the New World and there they are fighting to survive as this early group of pilgrims begins trying to establish life in a world that was foreign to them. Tries to begin harvesting crops in a land that was foreign to them that was different from land that they had farmed before. And there's Native Americans around them, different tribes that that maybe are hostile to them, they just don't know. When one day, imagine their astonishment, when out of the woods walks a Native American who is fluent in English and whose family used to live on the land that they lived in. And that guy's name was Tisquantum, or who William Bradford later nicknamed Squanto. Squanto the great Squanto that we all learned about in history class, right? The one that came to help the pilgrims. And when they told me that story, I never like even asked like, well, how did this guy know English? Like how did this one, I just thought like, oh, it's a friendly Native American. Like everybody probably spoke English back then. But because of this guy's odyssey that he was on, because of the storms he went through, Squanto was able then to help the pilgrims. And where his family once had lived, he was adopted into this family of, of, of new people, this new, new community, this new colony of people. And so he's able to help them not only begin to farm the land by techniques that he knew of of growing up there, but to to fish the land and, and search for things like eels to give them food and sustenance. He was able to broker peace deals between the pilgrims and neighboring Native American tribes. Peace that we know didn't last forever, but lasted almost a generation between the pilgrims and the surrounding Native Americans. William Bradford, the, uh, the governor of the Plymouth Colony, he said that Squanto was a special instrument sent from God for their good beyond their expectation. And so Squanto was kind of adopted with them, became close friends with William Bradford. And then when he died, it's written, William Bradford wrote that he was with Squanto, and Squanto died, and he asked for William Bradford to pray for him so that when he died, he could go to the Englishman's God. And that's the full story of Squanto that usually we just get a little snippet with like on a a Thanksgiving cartoon or maybe in history class. But if we look at this and we look at his life and we say, well, what would have happened if Squanto had never been abducted? What if he'd never been stolen from his land and taken as a slave to a new country? Well, probably he would have been wiped out with the rest of his family when that plague came. And probably he wouldn't have learned English. And so there would have been no one to help the Plymouth Colony that that first year. And so they maybe wouldn't have survived. Or even worse, maybe war would have started with them and the neighboring tribes that Squanto was able to broker a peace deal with. And that would have ended terribly as well. We see through his story that there was a purpose in his storm, a purpose to establish peace, to help this new colony. And so for just a moment in time, because of this one man's difficult journey, we we had Native Americans... And new colonists coming together, surrounding a dinner table, giving thanks to God. Which is why on Thanksgiving, we all gather together at a Best Buy and wait in line for a new flat screen TV, right? So just remember that's, you know, Thanksgiving for us these days. But but why do I tell this story? Why do I talk about this? Not just because we're two weeks out from Thanksgiving, but because I think that this story of Tisquantum very much mirrors the story that we see the Apostle Paul has been on. Because if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've seen that Paul has been in quite an odyssey. He's been through quite a journey, quite a storm. Paul was trying to take the gospel to to different places, and in the process, he gets arrested. He gets arrested, and then he is beaten to the point of his life, like the the axe is ready to chop his head when Paul appeals to Caesar. Caesar. And then from there, after starting riots and being thrown into jail, he's kind of in this like political prison, held as like a political prisoner for almost two years, where the people holding him are trying to get more money out of holding him and trying to use him as a bargaining chip. And all of these things are going on for Paul's life. Meanwhile, while he's in jail, there's other people that have like plotted to kill him and said they're not going to eat until he dies. But then finally, Paul is moved from this kind of prison limbo onto a prisoner's transport of a ship. And so he's finally on the ship. He's going to be going to Rome where he'll be taken, and he'll be tried. But then this huge storm comes up over the ship. And as Luke writes about this in the book of Acts, he talks of how there were like days and night. They couldn't tell the difference between day and night, and that for days were just dark. And they'd abandoned all hope. They're throwing cargo overboard and all of these things. And then finally the ship goes down, and Paul, as a prisoner, he floats to shore with the rest of the people on this boat. And then look at what happens next. Luke picks up the story in Acts chapter 28. Verse 1, and he says, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold, on top of everything else, right? Like, oh, I and mean, it's raining too. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. Really? Really? Like, really? I mean, if we were Paul in this moment, what is your thoughts? Like, God, was it not enough that I was beaten, that a riot started, that I was arrested, that I was put on a boat as a prisoner, and then the boat goes down? Like, that wasn't enough, God? Like, now I'm going to just, this is it. Maybe this is it. I'm going to die from a snake bite. After all of this, snake bite is what takes me down? Come on. We have to imagine that just for a moment, Paul felt that way, right? Just for a moment after everything he has been through, and now, A snake bites him, just icing on the cake, right? I don't know if you've ever had like that kind of day or that kind of season in your life where just it is one thing after another, and it feels like it just does not stop. Maybe for you, it's you're trying to head to a job interview. You get lost on the way for whatever reason. You finally find the place. And then as you're getting out of the car, you spill coffee all over yourself. And there's no time to change. You've got to go into the job interview late, coffee all over you. You know you don't get the job. And then you go back out to your car and find that you have a parking ticket, right? Just one of those things like the parking ticket, the icing on the cake. Did we have to go that far? For, for college students, I know it always seems that like when it rains, it pours, happens for them surrounding relationships. Like there'll be some kind of messy breakup. And then not long after this, while they're reeling in this breakup, find out, man, your scholarship was dropped. You maybe won't be coming to school here next year. And then on top of that and the stress of all this, you sleep through your alarm, you miss your exam, things are not looking good, right? Or maybe for you, it's the day that you lose your job. And as you go out to your car, the car doesn't start. Then when you finally get home, the roof is leaking and it just feels like it's one thing after another. Could it not have just been like one thing at a time? Did it have to be a snake bite on top of the shipwreck? Or maybe for you, it is just trying to trying to get to Christmas and you're looking at the bills and you're seeing like, I don't know where Christmas gifts might come from this year. And as you look at this, then there's that other bill that you thought was taken care of, maybe a medical bill, and then it turns out insurance didn't pay on it what you thought they were gonna pay and you just don't know what to do with it. Or maybe you've just wrapped up the funeral for a loved one and then you find out that you've got the same diagnosis that they had, that they died from. And now you're dealing with these things we find ourselves, we all find ourselves in storms. I don't care how young or how old this life is filled with storms, and we often find ourselves in them. And we can find ourselves in the midst of these storms asking, God, what are you doing? God, have you forgotten about me? Have you made a mistake? Because my life is dark right now. But here's what we've learned from Paul's story, is that in that moment, and in every bit of the storm leading up to that moment, Jesus was with him. Jesus was with Paul in his storm the whole way. God is present in the storm. We see that when Paul was in jail in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And that's kind of how Paul got started off on the story. Jesus was with him in the storm, standing next to him in jail. And then on the boat, In the storm, when the boat is about to go down, Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So Paul, as this ship is about to be turned over, Jesus is with him an angel is present with him. God is with Paul in the storm. And that's true for us also. I hope that's something that you've seen throughout the book of Acts, that God is present in the storm. And so if you're in the storm right now, even though you feel like you're alone, even though you might feel isolated, know that God is with you in the storm. We've seen that all throughout the Bible. But here's what else I think we can take from the story of the end of Paul's storm when he gets bit by a snake, is that God has purpose in our storm. That not only is Jesus present in our storm, there can be a purpose for our storm. Because as we look at the rest of the story, just read with me. It says this in Acts uh, 28, back to there, chapter uh, or verse 4. It says, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So once again, Jesus is present in the storm, right? But then it says they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, well, he must be a god which is a hilarious like, turn for them. Like, one minute they're like, oh, this guy must be like, super evil, the worst of the worst. Like, justice is after him. And the next thing you know, they're like, nope, he's a god. Like, he's totally a god. Like, he survived all this, must be a god. Which, ironically for Paul, is not the first time this has happened where he has done something miraculous through the power of Jesus and people have mistaken him for a god. So much so that I think Luke doesn't even go into the details of like, well, then we had to like repeat that whole story and be like, no, no, we are not a God. We serve a God and here's the deal about him. But I think that that must happen. And so right there we see that God is present for Paul in the midst of this storm, that even though he is bit by a snake, he miraculously survives. And so even though for a moment Paul was probably like very envious of Philip, remember Philip after he speaks to that Ethiopian and God just like zaps him up after he baptizes that guy and takes Philip to another place? Like I know for a moment, Paul had to be like, God, could you not have just like filled me to Rome? Like there is an easier way, but we have to go through this and then now snake bite. But then when he doesn't die, we see that there is a miracle that happens. Jesus was present with Paul in the midst of the storm. And then here's what else happens. It says in verse 7, now in the neighborhood of the place where lands, belong, where lands belonging to the chief man of, his, of the island, I read that terribly. I'll just start over. I got fast and excited. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island named, ready for this awesome Bible name, Publius. Go ahead. Just say Publius. It's fun. Well done. Publius. Again, we always stick to like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jeremiah. I'm going to give you another awesome Bible name to name your children. Publius. So they meet up with Publius and it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so here's this little island of Malta that Paul never planned on going to, but through his storm, through his odyssey, God takes Paul to Malta. And while he is on Malta, we see more storms happening, but we see that Jesus is with him. And then there's a purpose in it, because it captures the attention of this guy named Publius, who's got a sick father-in-law. And so Paul's able to heal this father-in-law, and then more people hear about this healing, and more people are able to have their lives changed by being healed by the power of Jesus Christ. We don't get all the details, but I can only imagine that they're asking questions when Paul says be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Like, who is this man? And now the word of God has come to the small island of Malta. God had a purpose in Paul's storm. And so we can look at stories like this, and I hope it can be encouraging to you. But I also know that when you're in the middle of a storm, it's easy to look at this and say, yeah, but my storm is different. My storm, you don't know what's going on in my life. These are the things that I've had and I don't see the miracles that Paul is seeing. My storm is different. I still believe that there can be a purpose in your storm. And the Bible tells us this. At minimum, the Bible tells us that at at least our storms, our trials make us stronger, that they bring us perseverance. Here's what James says about that in James chapter one, verses two through four. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now the trials James is writing about, the people he is writing to, what they were going through was their lives were on the line for their belief in Jesus. Their family was being taken from their houses and thrown in jail. Some of them were being murdered for their faith in Christ. Those are the trials. That's the storm that James is talking about. And he says, consider it joy when you face them. For no, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Other translations say perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. At minimum, our storms can make us stronger, which we all know is good. Like, We're like, well, I wish I could get stronger in another way, right? But at minimum, our storms, our tough times can bring about perseverance, which make us stronger for now and hopefully stronger for later should we go through other storms there's purpose in the storm, and one of those purposes can be perseverance. But then we see with this also, like you might even say, like, but that, that storm, I don't feel like I'm getting stronger through my storm. I feel like I'm getting weaker. I feel like more keeps happening that I am just getting more and more beaten down by what is going on in my life. I think Paul would understand that also. If we go to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, where Paul is writing again to a church, He begins talking about his journey, about his odyssey, his storm. And here's what he says, 1124, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Which is like one of those weird math problems, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only get to read about one shipwreck in the book of Acts, but three times it happened to Paul. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Paul is saying, you feel weak, man, I have felt weak. Let me go through the list of the things that have made me feel broken down, that have made me feel weak. But that's not where Paul leaves it. He says this at the end of the next chapter in verse nine of chapter 12, he says, but he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our storms may make us feel weak, but God has a purpose for our storms. And that purpose might just be giving us his strength. And then through that, letting other people see the strength of Christ in our lives and in our storms. And so here's what happens in Paul when he is weak, when he is bit by a snake, miracle. And so not only is Paul made stronger, we just read about it through his whole process, but now Jesus is proclaimed. And I think the same can be true of us when we feel weak and yet we are able to say, man, I am strong. Everything in life is against me, it feels right now, but God is with me. I am to the point where I have nothing to lean on, nothing to rely on but Jesus. And when we talk about that and people see us going through those storms, through the power of Christ, know that Jesus is proclaimed in your weakness that Jesus is seen in your journey, that no matter how hard it got in your life, when you stayed with Jesus, that speaks loudly. And so today, that's the truth that I hope we can gather from this weird story of Paul getting bit by a snake, is that when God is present in our storms, but also there's a purpose for our storms, and that purpose may just be to help us develop perseverance. That purpose may be the proclamation of the power of Jesus Christ In our lives. And that's what we see happen on the island of Malta. So, here's a question I have for you this morning because I know, I know many of us have brought in storms with us this morning. Many of us might be in the midst of a journey right now. It might feel like you are on a ship and that ship is going down. Several people after First Service came and talked to me and shared a little bit about the journeys, the stories that they are on. I know that many of us are in the midst of dark times. And so here's what I I, I ask of you is, how are you going to handle that storm? If you find yourself in a storm right now, how are you going to handle it? Are you going to ask questions like, God, where are you? God, have you given up on me? Are you going to seek out the perseverance, the power of Christ? Or are you going to begin seeking out something else? Something else from the world to try and ease the pain? As things get hard, are you going to slip back into old habits? Maybe go back to the bottle more than you should. Maybe find the the arms of someone you shouldn't be in to find comfort, to ease the pain. What I've found is just that makes things worse. That that is not going to help your journey. That's not going to get any lighter. That's going to make things darker. When we go to the world for help in our storm, there's no real help there. It just complicates our whole journey. But if we can go to Christ, who is there, who we know is there, we're going to find strength and we're going to find perseverance, and we're going to find his power. So how are you handling your storm? Know that Jesus is in it, but it is only from Jesus where you will find strength in that storm. Here's where I've felt that played out in my own life. Here's where I've learned that Jesus is present in the storm, that perseverance and purpose can come out of a storm. is um, When I was in college, uh, in 2004, June of 2004, uh, I had a cousin who was very close to me um, who we lost. And when I say cousin, to some people cousin means one thing, like to some it's another thing. Uh, the West Virginia cousin where I grew up like tends to be a little bit of a stronger uh, idea. Some of you I think Southerners will get that of like, oh, it's my cousin. Like it's more than cousin, right? I grew up with with two older sisters, so I never got to have a brother But I had my cousin Dave and his two older brothers, Sam and Paul. And so when we would get together on holidays and things, I loved it because the tables turned on my sisters. I was no longer outnumbered. We now outnumbered them. And so my cousins and I, like we would, we grew up just playing together. And my cousin Dave was the youngest of those three. I was the youngest of my three. And we just became really close. And we'd go camping together. We'd, of course, see each other on holidays and hang out. And then as we got older, we developed more of just a friendship. And that's when I would say, like, we went from just even being cousins to more like brothers. And and Dave and I, as we were getting into college, we were both looking at similar futures. He was planning on being a pastor. I was planning on being a pastor. He was going to a small Bible college in Knoxville called Crown College. And I was here in Bristol going to King. And so we had this one one crazy scheme the the year that he died. It was uh, New Year's Eve before Dave died him and I sat up all night playing Monopoly, just me and him. Like, I I think maybe other people had started in the game and then we beat them out and they'd left and gone to bed. Me and Dave played Monopoly all night long, which is a terrible game to play with just two people. But we got to the end of the night and like one of us would land on the other's property and be like, you can just, you don't have to pay me this time. And then the other one would be broke and be like, well, I'll float you alone. Like this game of Monopoly just never ended. But in that game, we hatched this plan to go fishing. We decided we were gonna be the first people on the Cranberry River, which is this river in West Virginia. We wanted to be the first people on the Cranberry River Cranberry that year in 2004. And so we went one January day, early in January, and it was freezing. And our moms, like they didn't want to tell us not to go, but you could tell they didn't want us to go because they're nervous that we're going out in the wild like this. It was a river that you had to walk, you couldn't drive to. And we went and it was freezing. I had no gloves, but my cousin Dave had gloves. And so we split the gloves. This is the kind of guy that Dave was. He gave me one glove, he'd wear the other. And then when our hands got cold, we'd switch, right? But I remember that fishing trip and I bring it up because in that time we began talking about our futures. In that time we began talking about what we hope to do in our careers in ministry. I shared with him I was dating Christy at the time and was thinking about proposing to her and all those things. He shared with me about how he hoped to go back to a, a local church that he'd grown up at and begin doing ministry there. And that was the last significant time that I really got to hang out with Dave. Because that summer I was working in Raleigh and I got the call that the car he was riding in with five other college students from his school had been hit head on and no one survived and Dave was dead. He was with a, a singing group from his college and him and I think it was five other students were touring around churches and they would sing and they would preach about Jesus and as they were driving down the road one day there was a citrus truck on a two lane highway that crossed the middle line and hit their 15 passenger van head on. The autopsy showed that their lungs had no smoke damage, that they didn't even have the the moment to breathe another breath, that they died on impact, which was comforting to us. But everything else was just destroyed. And in that moment, when I got that news, there were so many things that went through my head in the midst of this storm. The plans that Dave had talked about, the way he was supposed to go back and start this ministry, the things that were going on in his life then, The things that him and I were supposed to do together as we grew up, as we got older together. And now all of that was done because Dave was gone. And it was one of those moments for me where I just asked, God, where are you in this? God, have you made a mistake? God, this can't be right. This can't be what was supposed to happen with his life. There was bigger plans. You had bigger plans for him, but now they're over. And I found myself in the midst of a storm that lingered in my life for some time that brought up issues of, of anxiety and, and fear. And just, I really struggled through this. But later on, we began to hear stories about the death of these students that died. And one of them was this that at the site of the wreckage, there was a fireman on the scene. And as he was going through the wreckage and they're trying to clean things up, almost everything was burned and charred and gone. But there was one thing that the fire had not touched and it was a CD that somehow had survived every flame, every bit of destruction. And the name of the CD was, God Makes No Mistakes. And that night, that fireman went home and he told the story to his son. And his teenage son, hearing that story about my cousin's death, gave his life to Christ. And I know that my cousin would have said that is worth it. I know that Dave Childers would have said his life, his death was worth it to know that one person came to Christ from his storm, from his story. And for my family and I, that was great comfort. And we began hearing not just that story, but several others coming out of that accident of how Jesus was not only present in that storm, but had a purpose for that storm. And that many, many people came to Christ because of the death of my cousin. So that's how I have experienced this that God is present in our storms. And even when we can't see it, God has a purpose for our storms. It might just be to make you stronger. I know from that story, I'm much stronger than I would have been having not gone through that grief, having not learned the things I learned through that process. But I also see that God had a purpose, that his power would be proclaimed through the death of my cousin. And so I don't know what storm you're in right now, but we see through stories like Squanto, We see through stories like Paul, through the story of my cousin's death, that God is with us in the storm and he has a purpose for your storm. So my challenge, my prayer for you this morning is that in that storm, you would cling to him and you'd look only to Jesus in your time of darkness. Let me pray for us. God, I wanna lift up this morning the people who came in and their lives feel like they're on the boat of a ship that is going down. I want to pray for those that just feel that they are alone, that they're down, that they're weary, that it's just been one too many things after another. And God, I just pray right now that you'd be very close to them and you'd let them feel your presence in their storm. Let them know that you are with them in the storm, as your word tells us. And God, I pray that even when we can't see it, we would take the knowledge that there's a purpose for our storms whether that purpose is just to make us stronger or whether something even bigger is going on that somehow your power, your son is being proclaimed through our storm. God, I pray that you'd give us that courage, that reassurance so that we can turn to you and nothing else in the middle of our storms. So I thank you this morning, God, that in our storms, you are with us. And I pray, God, that your purpose will be fulfilled through our storms that we'd become stronger but more than anything that the name of Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he brings through his death for us that that name that that love would be proclaimed through us it's in your name